What's up, everybody? It's Thea Sam here. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Thank you guys so much for listening. If my voice sounds a little bit funny to you, it's because I'm just coming over a pretty bad head cold here and doing my best. And I actually did the interview today in this kind of condition, but I didn't want to reschedule. I've been trying to get this guy in for a long time uh, because he has such an important message to carry and one that I've been longing to share with you. And so I wasn't going to miss this. And thank God I was feeling uh, good enough to do the interview. So here's the deal. Uh, I personally believe there are lots of great theories and modalities in the place of clinical psychology that have really allowed us to have better lives, better mental health, and everything else. And, you know, every theory and practice, generally speaking, has its place. In other words, depending on the demographic or the environment or the specific disorder, it's going to be more effective than uh, in another one. But then you find occasional theories or practices where you just, you realize, oh my gosh, this is applicable everywhere for everything and everybody needs to know about this and that is how I feel about attachment theory and I I imagine there's tons of people in the field who would argue me uh, about that that's fine they can have their arguments but as far as I'm concerned this is one of the most pivotal theories that has come out of modern psychology in the last two centuries and so uh, today we have done a deep dive into attachment theory what is attachment theory uh and, and basically, like, what is it, what are the different kinds? How do you know what kind you are? And most importantly, what is the implication for attachment theory in addiction? And it's actually pretty obvious when you get into it, although you may not realize it right, right away. Uh, but the cool thing is when you understand what attachment theory is, you understand how it plays into addiction, then, ta-da, the solution kind of presents itself. And it may not be that crazy to you, but I, I just love the way uh, this conversation went. And I didn't pick anybody to talk about such an important subject. Uh, I picked Dr. Jake Porter, who is a renowned psychotherapist, worked as a pastoral leader for 10 years before he got into this space. And he has a booming practice. Um, I mean, this guy is just unbelievable what he does and the people he reaches and really the way he communicates it. You're going to find out why he's in such high demand. So I want you to go ahead and listen to this, take some notes. And I can pretty much guarantee you, if you are still in recovery, even if you're recovered, but you know there's still some cleanup to be done, uh, maybe you just want to see some improvement in your relationships, this podcast is going to offer you a, a door or a window into a theory that could really change your life. So uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Let's tune into my interview with Dr. Jake Porter. So here's the million dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives and a God-given purpose supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts, all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships, and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Well, Jake Porter, it's a pleasure to finally have you on the podcast, man. Welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a delight. So uh, we got some big things to tackle here. I'm I'm so passionate about attachment theory, and I know you are too. And I think it's got some major implications for addiction, for relationship patterns, um, and you know just the whole gamut. So we'll get into those things first. But why don't we just sure. start basic? Let's talk about what is attachment theory. Yeah. So attachment theory is. Uh, it's a it's a school of thought that came out of um, British psychology originally, actually, a guy named yeah. John Bowlby, who was a British psychologist back in the early 20th century. He started saying he started really challenging the uh, the the dominant ideas of the day. So back then, Freud was king. Right. And Freud, not to get into too much depth here, but Freud was all about internal drives. And he said that that our problems came from conflicts in our internal drives. And Bowlby was one of the first people to say, hold on, hold on. I think some of these conflicts are interpersonal. I think some of them are rooted in relationships. And, um, and that was, it was a huge challenge. In fact, in school, he, he had to like not talk about it because people would just, just shamed him for it. You know, it can't be, can't challenge Freud, but turns out that he was right. Because wow. along with the work he was doing, other work that other researchers were doing started to show that, and this is this is the heart of attachment theory, that our drive to attach to others is a primary 
drive, not a secondary drive. Whereas it was believed, oh, an infant attaches to the mother because the mother provides nurture, food, right? right. It's back that to the individual desire. That's right. It's actually about the connection itself. Mm. The connection isn't a utility or a means to a primary need. The connection itself is a primary need. Yeah. That was a huge paradigm shift. That is massive. And I think that was in like the 20s, right? When Balbi started to come up with that idea. But it, it took a long time before it actually got traction, right? It, it did. So in the 20s, he starts writing. In the 30s, he's doing some research. He actually got um, commissioned by the World Health Organization. And he studied um, young people who at that time were young adults who as children had been orphaned or sent away from their parents during World War One. And the findings from his research were so dramatic. It was like people had to start paying attention. And then at the same time, in parallel, you have guys like Harry Harlow uh, doing research with and people will have heard this if they took a, you know, intro to psych class back in college. The, the little monkey who put the baby monkey in the cage. And on one side, there's this wire mother monkey who has food. And on the other side is this warm terry cloth, soft mother monkey figure and what they found was this baby monkey would run over get a few sips of food and then run back to the soft monkey and they and show distress if that nurturing figure was removed and so that was just from another angle another stream of research that's saying hold up this connection thing is a primary not a secondary drive it's fundamental wow. to our needs okay okay yeah so you can kind of imagine how that would be pretty groundbreaking and yeah. it's funny because I think there's a, there's tons of relationship research now, all these years later. And uh, here we are as a society, 2022, and we're still seem to be figuring this thing out a little bit. Um, what what were what is the I guess the the premise then of attachment theory? So we know okay, connection is actually fundamental. This is not secondary right. in our needs and desires. Um, and then there's some categories, obviously, that people typically fall into. Somewhere it's more of a spectrum than it is categorization. But um, but sure. talk us through the types. Yeah, sure. So, so the idea is like you just said, we need connection early on. It's a primary need. Uh, it, specifically, we need what's called secure attachment. All right. We need to develop a secure attachment relationship with our caregivers. So let's start with defining that. Okay. Secure attachment means that there is consistent repair after rupture. Okay, so it doesn't mean there's never a break in the relationship because think about it, I've got a two-year-old right now, okay? There are ruptures in our relationship, right? Sometimes she wants candy and I say no. Uh, sometimes she wakes up at night and she's had a nightmare and I'm not right there next to her at the crib, right? right? Sometimes we're at the park and she's running and playing and she falls down and it takes some time for me to get to her. Those are ruptures, but the consistency of the repair after the rupture trains her literally at the level of her nervous system to trust that the repair is coming, which means she doesn't have to fear the rupture so much. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we can be close. We, I can feel safe close to you because you're nurturing and you're caring. But guess what? If you have to go away for a minute, I'll be okay because I trust right. you're going to come back. Huh? So that's secure attachment, right? That's the goal. That's what we all, you know, strive for. But unfortunately, for a lot of different reasons, we can develop some other styles as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So one one thing, because I, I know some of our listeners like the neurobiology part of this, and you touched a little bit on how even the nervous system is at play here in secure attachment. What, right. What's going on exactly uh, when somebody is securely attached? Okay. That's a, that's an Fabulous question. I love this question. I'll try not to geek out too much. Okay. <laughs> so the infant nervous system, and, and this is true to varying degrees all the way really up until adulthood. Okay. Late adolescence and adulthood yeah. that, but especially in infants and young toddlers, the nervous system is not able to regulate itself. Okay. So the mm -hmm. infant nervous system is dependent on an external nervous system to help it return to a state of regulation if it gets dysregulated, okay? Mm -hmm. 
So, and this this is going to upset some people, but I'm going to say it because it's true. So the idea of self-soothing is is not real for like a two-month-old, four-month-old, six-month-old, even eight-month-old. There's not a lot of self-soothing they can do. A little bit. And, sure. and over time, you help build that capacity. But do you know where the capacity to self-soothe comes from? From being soothed, right? right? So when this external nervous system soothes me, I'm afraid they help me feel safe. I'm angry. They help me get back to a place of being grounded, right? I'm sad. They help me feel okay. I feel shame. They lift me out of that shame. And all of those capacities have to be built into us from an external system. And they come through the repeated experience over and over and over. It's like, okay, there's this quote uh, from the Dalai Lama that I, that I really love. Okay. He, he was asked in this interview, what do you do when you're afraid? And his answer was, I remember my mother's love. Wow. That, That is attachment. That is secure attachment. So my mother's, I felt my mother's love so much. I've internalized it and can recall it on my own. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That's secure attachment. Okay. Okay. So when somebody's done this well, I like when a parent has, I guess, done this well in establishing with their kid, it's not that there's an absence of ruptures. It's that there's a constant presence of repairs. Absolutely. In fact, if you try to stop ruptures from happening, you will end up causing one of the types of insecure attachment. Right, because they can never adopt their own ability to to self-soothe, so to speak, right? Yeah, and they always wonder what happens if there is a rupture, right? right? Like, like the helicopter parent that's always there, always there, always there, always there, <laughs> right? It's like, well, what happens if they do leave? Yeah. <clears throat> right. And so, so that creates a, a, an intolerable situation for the young nervous system as well. Okay. Okay. Got it. So, um, we ha- kind of have a picture of the ideal here now. So we know if everything goes according to plan, we're all securely attached. Uh, we have that regulated nervous system. We develop the ability to soothe ourselves as we get older and it gets stronger and we become more independent and, you know, life you got is it. Uh, easy come, easy go. Right. Um, what happens when the system starts to fall apart or maybe is not functioning perfectly? So, so what happens is often if there's not that consistency of repair after rupture, then we develop these other types of attachment styles. Okay. And there are different, um, sort of sets of labels around these. I'm just going to yeah. use the ones that I, I typically yeah, yeah, go um, for it. speak to my, to my clients and the folks I work with. So one would be what we call dismissive attachment, a dismissing or dismissive attachment style. Yeah. This is going to be someone who does not want as much closeness. Okay. And I'm not just talking about physical closeness emotional relational proximity i want you to see me i want you to know me i want you to hear my thoughts and hear my feelings all of that so this is going to be someone who who wants more distance but at the same time they also don't externally show and they're likely not really in touch with anxiety about abandonment now put those two together so i don't need to be close to you and i'm not really worried about you leaving (laughs) see how that comes across as dismissive Right. Yeah. Right. So, so the partner of someone with dismissive attachment is going to be like, it's going to, it's going to, the message they're going to get from the dismissive partner is all right, whatever. See you go fine. All right. You don't like what I'm doing. All right. Doesn't matter. Go. To me. Doesn't matter. Go on. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like in the old peanuts cartoons, you've got, um, Schroeder is the piano player. Yeah. All right. And Lucy is in love with Schroeder, and Sh- but Schroeder just could care less. He just will <laughs> not show her the time of day, except that in a few of the comic strips, there's there's ones where like she's sleeping or whatever, and then he'll sort of whisper to her his true feelings. Right. 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 Okay. Now, now here's a, here's a good way to know if you're dismissing. Okay, uh, have a dismissive attachment style. You're easily overwhelmed by intense emotions. 
mm-hmm. and more likely to just kind of go into shutdown. Okay. okay? So, so th- at the level of the nervous system, dismissing attachment style is going to be very easily triggered by big, overwhelming emotions. Okay. All right. So that's one. Okay. Kind of on the opposite end is something called preoccupied attachment. Okay. okay. And in the best way to think of this is they're preoccupied with the relationship. All right. So they want to be close. They want to have lots of proximity. And even with the proximity, they're still anxious about abandonment. Okay. Hmm. So they're actually going to be super sensitive to anything that looks or feels like abandonment or misattunement. Like you're not understanding me. These people are going to go upward in intensity They're going to have lots and lots of words. They probably repeat themselves a lot and they're hypersensitive to if you pull away or whatever. Okay. Got it. So um, would it be fair to say that these two opposites could attract in relationships on a regular basis? Because I know my wife and I, we sometimes laugh when we listen to stuff on attachment theory. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely more on the dismissive side and she would be more on the preoccupied side. Um, and when we talk with other couples, it's very clear that we're not alone. Um, do you observe that in your office as well? I would say between 80 and 90% of the couples I work with, that's the case. One is dismissing and the other is preoccupied. And of those, I'd say probably 75% of the time, the the husband is dismissing and the wife is preoccupied. Now I have absolutely had it reversed. Sure, I've sure. absolutely had two preoccupied people. Those are high conflict couples, like yeah. couple, and we all have we all know somebody right where they like they fight all the time. They're constantly into it, but at the end of the day, they're like happy as they can be. Really, yeah. <laughs> they're just they're probably two preoccupied people. Okay, right. And then you you can also have two dismissing people. They're the hardest to work with because they both, they like collude with each other to avoid intense emotion (laughs) or conflict, you know, it's really hard to work with those. But, but the bulk of the time we do see a dismissing partner and a preoccupied partner and, and it creates this incredible dance. So, so think about those two, as I just described them. So you've got the preoccupied partner who's very sensitive to anything that feels like abandonment, right? Right. So let's say the dismissing partner is just having a lot of alone time and it kind of triggers the preoccupied partner. And so that preoccupied partner, I'm just going to say she, because that is what I see most of the time, goes upward in intensity. Hey, what's going on with you? Where have you been? You know, why aren't you, you know, what's, what's wrong? I can tell something's wrong. So here's this intense emotion, which triggers what in him? Overwhelm. And as he's going into overwhelm, she's feeling uh, he, he starts to pull away as he's pulling away what's happening in her yes, more fear abandonment. of abandonment right. so she goes up even more in intensity and as she goes up even more he wants to pull away even more and they're just moving further and further apart okay got it so um okay i want to ask a ton of questions about these relationships even for my own benefit but sure. i'm gonna i'm gonna put a slight pause on it because uh this obviously has a tie into addiction as well yeah um, yeah. Should we cover the other attachment style before we get there? Would that be helpful? Uh, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's okay. do it real quick. Yeah. Okay, so go the, the other one is really just a, a, someone who is both dismissive and preoccupied and they flip flop back and forth and can turn on a dime and it's okay. called disorganized or it's called fearful avoidant. And there's really only one way that you become disorganized or fearful avoidant in your detachment style. And that's when the person who or people who are meant to be the source of comfort and security simultaneously become the source of distress and threat. And so think Mm. about it. One person, both comfort and security and distress and threat, it creates this come here, go away, push, pull sort of dynamic. I need you, but you're scary to me, right? Wow. Um, you're, you're a threat to me, but you're also the one that keeps me safe. And so literally again, at the level of the nervous system, there's this programming that creates this push pull, come here, go away. I hate you. Don't leave me kind of dynamic. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Really? Yeah. Really helpful. Um, and I mean, to give people an idea, you know, they've, they've done studies on people, uh, recovering from PTSD 
And yes. people who have um, any attachment style, basically, other than disorganized attachment, tend to do much better in recovery. Um, so, like this stuff, this stuff can pretty much affect any area of somebody's life um, and their mental well-being. I wanted to ask one final question because we have parents listening, and um, you know, parents often are listening because they want, you know, they don't they want to either prevent their kids from getting exposed to pornography and developing addictions and that kind of stuff. Uh, what we focus on, or maybe their kids have encountered it and they're trying to help them. But I can imagine some parents are listening to this thinking, oh my gosh, um, if I didn't <laughs> repair properly as a kid uh, or as a parent rather when my kids were young, what might I have, I have caused in my, um, in my children? And I guess the question I have is, number one, maybe what would you say to a parent who's, who's maybe feeling that as they're listening? Yeah. Number, number two is, um, does the way somebody parent in any way affect which direction a child might veer off, whether it's towards dismissive or right. preoccupied, or is that yeah. totally separate? Okay, so the answer to your first question, what would I tell them? Well, I do offer a plan where you play, pay today's rates for the child's therapy in 20 years. It's kind of like buying a <laughs> funeral plot. I'm kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> um, sorry. No, I, I, here's what I would say. There's no such thing as a perfect parent and literally, literally in the textbooks, like like I teach human growth and development. We get get into human um, child psychology and all this kind of stuff uh, at the grad school where I teach. And literally the textbook term is good enough parenting. Hmm. Good enough. Wow. Yeah. Good enough. That is literally the academic clinical term. And what <laughs> is good enough parenting? That you just repair the ruptures more often than you don't. Right. That's okay. it. That's it. That's it. Yep. It, it, so, so just don't lose sight of the reality that ruptures are actually required for the development of the security. Okay. Of course, we don't want to intentionally create ruptures, you know, yeah. they're going to happen because this world is crazy and you know, whatever. But, um, when you notice a rupture, you just repair it okay. that, that like, and if you do that more often than not, that's good enough. Okay. okay, so so that's the first thing I would say. Now, here's the flip side of that. Your second question. The number one uh, determining factor of a, of the attachment style that someone develops is the attachment styles of the parents. It, okay. It's almost, well, I shouldn't say almost. It is, in fact, handed down. Now, that's not 100% of the time. That is not the case because right. you could have, I mean, there are stories out there of kids who had parents who were lost in addiction and all this kind of stuff and just crazy trauma and all this. But they had like a coach, right, who just really took an interest in them or a Sunday school teacher or they had or their grandmother was this secure attachment figure. The presence of one secure attachment figure can be life changing in terms wow. of the trajectory of development. So, okay. so it's not a one-to-one, -one, it's not a hundred percent, but the, the research is definitely clear that by and large attachment styles get passed down from one yeah. generation to the next. Okay. Very helpful. Yeah. It makes a lot yeah. of sense. So um, let's, let's jump into addiction a little bit. How does this yeah. play into the picture when we're talking about, you know, whether it's um, I mean, for our scope, it's typically sex or porn addiction. Um, and, but I don't know if this goes even beyond that, but how, how does it factor in? Yeah. So there's lots of research out there showing correlation between insecure attachment styles and addiction. Um, uh, I have worked with addicts who are securely attached, so it's not a guarantee by yeah. any means, but, but it's certainly, um, cer there's certainly something going on and here's, here's what we think it is. So. If you think about what addiction really is, like how does it function? Because it's doing something. There's a yeah. reason addicts are addicted, right? And the the easiest way I know to explain it is that with addiction, I'm using something on the outside, be that a substance, a behavior, right? Um, whatever, something on the outside to try to change the way I feel on the inside. Right. Now, why would I need to do that? Well, I would need to do that because I don't have the capacity to change what I'm feeling on the inside in a healthy way. Hmm. And where does that capacity come from? Secure attachment. Okay. So that's what it goes back to. So 
uh, probably about 10 years ago, we started hearing things like, you know, sobriety is not the opposite of addiction. Connection is the opposite of addiction. Um, and that's, that's what they're basing that on. Right. That, that the addiction is not the root problem. It is the symptom of a deeper problem. And that deeper problem is typically a, a lack of what here's the, the, you know, clunky clinical term affect regulation capacity. So yeah. to, to regulate my affect a F F E C T, which is sort of that felt sense in the body. Yeah. Um, that's the, the background of our emotions and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So, so somebody is experiencing something uncomfortable within and the only way they know how to manage it because of their attachment style is by external means. And then naturally, I mean, it's not, not too hard to get addicted in our society. Unfortunately, there's lots of convenient options. Right. Um, how does this factor in to, um, the, I would, let's say the prolonging of it, because I can imagine they would start that way, but then as an addiction continues, like, is it now just the, the neurobiology that's taken over? They're just hooked to it. Um, they're going to keep seeking the hit or is attachment theory still at play feeling it even later on? That's another great question. So it's a little bit of both actually. So there is sort of this feedback loop of the addictive cycle um, neurobiologically where, where I'm, I'm building a tolerance to, to the thing. So I need more and more, I need higher levels in order to achieve the same high. Right. And, um, and my, my body actually comes to expect a certain level of these chemical releases and whether that's coming through ingesting a chemical or performing some behavior, my body's expecting that it's using that for homeostasis. And here's, what's really interesting in the end. And this is often non-conscious, even to the addict is that once an addiction is really progressed, you're no longer really even seeking a high. And I, and a lot of the addicts I work with, they, they say this, it wasn't even pleasurable anymore. So they're yes. not seeking the high. They're trying to out, outrun the withdrawal. Okay. Uh. So, so in that way, it's almost like the addiction sort of takes off. It was rooted in this attachment thing problem, but then it takes on this life of its own. However, it is more complicated than that because you got to think of it like, a smaller cycle inside of a larger cycle. So that's the smaller cycle. The larger cycle, though, is when people are active in addiction, what effect does it tend to have on their relationships? Hmm. It's not good. Right. And so what they end up experiencing in their relationships, true or not, their perception of it is read through their early attachment experiences, and it begins to reinforce the insecure attachment messages from childhood. Okay. So they, so you, you have the, the insecure attachment in childhood, a couple of things obviously happen in between, but the, the addiction develops, the addiction kind of becomes a magnifier for the same dynamic in the relationships again, and it's perpetuating the cycle. It re it recreates it. So let's, let's make okay. it real. Okay. Let's put some skin on it. So let's say you've got an addict, um, who, uh, probably maybe is leans more toward the dismissive. So in other words, no one really knows me, loves me. If they really see me, they wouldn't love me. You know, that kind of a non-conscious mindset. All right. Yeah. And they're acting out an addiction. And as they do, let's say they just keep losing friends. People don't want to be with them. A series of romantic relationships end. well, they interpret that through the message. Right. right? And so, and so it's reinforcing those old scripts from childhood. Okay. Yep. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. So what does somebody do when they're in this place and they know they want to change? Um, how does working through your attachment stuff factor into somebody's recovery process? I think it's, I think it's essential, you know, and actually if you look at, those historic programs that work, you know, like the 12 step programs, right? Millions and millions of people found sobriety and recovery through 12 steps. It's not yeah. the only way, but, but they've done studies. Why did the 12 steps work? 
Well, it doesn't work to just go to a meeting. Right. It doesn't work to just check a box. You have to get into the program. And what is the program actually designed to do? I, I, I ask this all the time when I'm speaking to, to big groups who don't know much about addiction. How many times in the 12 steps is addiction actually mentioned? Once. Once at the beginning, right? Step one. Yeah. <laughs> all the rest is relational. Mm. My relationship to God, my relationship to myself and my own sense of integrity and my relationship to other people. Now, isn't that wow. interesting? Yeah. Huh. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and so whether it's 12 steps or some other group program, that community element is so essential because it's inside that community that we start to have those old scripts about relationships challenged. Oh, wait, you mean I can tell the truth and be safe? Oh, you mean I can show my imperfections and they won't leave me? Oh, what? It's right. So it's challenging the scripts that are the foundation of those insecure attachment patterns. And I'm beginning to, to get what's called earned secure attachment. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. I'm earning it. And I actually, I mean, I like that term on the one hand, but in another way, I don't because I can't merely earn it. It has to be given to me. Right. Just like that infant is dependent on the external nervous system to regulate itself early in my, I'm in recovery. Okay. So early in my own recovery, I was dependent on these people outside of me to help me regulate, to get me through a trigger, to get me through the urge to act out, um, yeah. to help me work through some, you know, the end of a relationship. Uh, I wasn't married when I got into recovery. So I was, you know, a dating relationship, the end of that relationship helped me get through the emotion of that without acting out. I needed those other people. It had to be given to me. Wow. Okay. That's really powerful because I think, um, it's what, it's what keeps people in addiction for such a long time is their choice to do it alone. Um, mm -hmm. the fear of reaching out and everything else. And it sounds like to tie this into the neurobiology of it again, like, what might have actually sourced it in the first place, which is the insecure attachment, uh, the inability to experience that security and internalize it properly, um, that can still be acquired later on in life. Absolutely. That is okay. that is the good news of neuroplasticity, that our <laughs> brains change all through life and we're not doomed to be, you know, stuck in yeah. one way of being at yeah, all. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. I mean, I'm thinking of a guy in our community. He's uh, he's about 70 and, you know, addicted to porn for five decades, tons of affairs. And um, and when he was going through one of our modules, he started to open up, you know, because he was he was like, oh, vulnerability. I didn't know I had to let people in, like just had no idea. And he was starting to share with his mom and his wife and his mother in law. And like he just like went for it and was feeling like all kinds of liberation. Um, and you know, he hasn't looked at porn in, I think it's almost two years now. He's, it's wow. been amazing what's wow. happened with him, but, um, but the, it just goes to show you the power of that, that earned secure attachment that you're talking about that. I think, I hope people listen this far into the interview because, um, it'd be easy to write yourself off and be like, oh, I didn't have the perfect childhood or whatever. This is just the way it is. Um, can we get even just a little bit more practical? What, what does it look like, like plugging into a community, um, what what other other ways could people earn secure attachment, so to speak, in their lives? Yeah. So number one is tell the truth. Mm. You you absolutely will not earn secure attachment if you're living a, a, a lie. Wow. You can't do it because you know you're lying, even if it's way deep, deep down there. And so you're walking around always wondering. What if they knew this? Mm. What if they knew this? Right? So, so the guy that says, I'll tell my wife everything I've done, except that one thing, it will always keep you from having as much security as you could, because you'll always wonder what would happen if she knew that one thing. Mm. So, and, and look, I'm not, I'm not saying like, every graphic gory detail that i'm not i'm not saying that you know yeah. which is where you need to get get some wise counsel you know and train helping this stuff but but you got to be truthful you got to be honest if you're not 
being honest, you will not get to secure attachment. That is number one. Number two is in recovery, there's a there's a phrase that, that's real popular. Do the next right thing, right? Do the next mm -hmm. right thing. Well, I've got an, an expanded version of that. Do the next right, riskiest, relational thing <laughs> repetitively and make it a rhythm in your life. Okay. Every right. single one of those is actually based on the science of neuroplasticity and maximizes brain change. So not just the next right thing, but the next right riskiest thing. And that, well, here's what I mean by that. Not stupid risk, not the kind of risk when we're lost in addiction, not that, yeah. but let's say, let's say I need to own something I've done wrong. Okay. Let's say I've, I, I really blew it with my wife this morning, which, which feels riskier shooting her a text or calling her on the phone. Yeah, that phone call every time. That phone call. But doing the phone call is going to change my brain more powerfully than the text will. Uh-huh, right. Okay, because the emotion and facing the emotion of the riskiness of that actually uh, amplifies the plasticity the effect, okay, of yeah. that change. Uh, the next right riskiest relational so do it in relational context can i call a buddy and process this first can i can i do it face to face eyeball to eyeball that night right. with my wife how do i make it relational because relational experiences are going to change the brain more and then also doing it repeatedly and in rhythm so do it over and over every time but create a rhythm of it too right, right. of these things um all of that is going to maximize brain change Okay. okay makes a lot of sense we have a saying in our community he who's most vulnerable heals the quickest and i i like that you have the risky part in there because i think that's kind of what you're hitting on isn't it like absolutely it's got to cost you something a little bit right yeah yeah it's and and that that goes back to the neurobiology piece like your brain one of the functions of emotion is it says this is important this matters right okay why is your brain going to do the work of cementing neural new neural pathways that don't matter. So you've got to make it feel like it matters. Okay. okay. That's why the risk of the vulnerability, right? Is so important. Yeah. And it's funny because I don't think it actually takes that much work for us to identify what these things are. I think the real work is actually convincing ourselves to do it, do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what would you say to somebody who's like, okay, Jake, you got me, you know, like I know what some of these things are I should be doing, but I just, you know, I just can't, I'm too scared or it's too inconvenient or what if my life changes, you know, um, we have all these different reasons. How do you talk somebody off that ledge? Okay. I love that you asked the question that way about the ledge, because this always makes me think of this scene from Indiana Jones and the last crusade. Okay. okay. So that's the one with Sean Connery where Sean Connery's his dad. Right. And they're oh, going yes. for the Holy grail and toward the end of the movie, uh, his dad's been shot. All right. And he's on, and, and he, Indy's got the dad's journal and he's almost to the grill. And there's these final three tests. And the very last one is called the leap of faith. Do you remember this in the movie? Yeah. He like walks up to this ledge. Now in the nineties, these computer graphics were like the coolest thing <laughs> blew my mind. Yeah. So that's why I remember it to this day. So, so there's Indiana Jones and he's standing at the ledge and it's the leap of faith. And, and he's like, no one can jump this. No one can. It's, this is impossible to jump. And he finally realizes like, he's just got to step out. Right. Mm. And there's this scene, this beautiful camera work. It's actually on YouTube. People can look it up and just watch this scene, Indiana Jones Leap of Faith. And you and 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 he he takes a step and there's this small little little drop, but then he, you hear his foot hit something. And then the camera zooms out and swings to the side. And there's this ledge that there's this walkway that looking at it dead on it looked like it blended into the other side of the of the canyon but from the side you could see it was this ledge going to the other side that's what we're talking about doing here huh. you think you're going to fall into this abyss this <laughs> bottomless pit but i'm telling you that when you take a step that is based on your values 
you will not fall into a bottomless pit. <laughs> it will. It's going to feel like it for a second. Yeah. Um, there could be cost to it. Yeah. But you are not going to fall into a bottomless pit. Wow. And, 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 and that's just the only way to know that is by doing it. And yeah. so you, you do it one step at a time. Yeah. And, and here's, here's one last piece of encouragement around that. I would say is that, you know, the alternative is that we use dysfunctional defense mechanisms. Like those are really our only two choices. Hmm. You either move forward in your, and you take ownership of your own development of who you are and want to be, or you use old regressive defense mechanisms that keep you stuck in the past. There is no third option. Huh. And every single choice I make sets me on a developmental trajectory to being and becoming the person I'm being and becoming. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. That was really well yeah. said. Worth the interview for that little segment alone. <laughs> it was really helpful. Thanks. Um, okay. So here's a question. So, um, so we're talking about how earned secure attachment is sort of the way forward. You know, once you've reached the spot, you have an understanding, you want to get to a place where you're healthy. So I can see how, you know, community, um, having professional help, these are ways where you're going to um, really gain secured attachment by relating to others. Can you talk a little bit about how you would earn secure attachment in your relationship with God and then your relationship with self as well? Absolutely. Good questions. So what would happen if we treated God like a real human because he did become one <laughs> <laughs> and Jesus remains incarnated today? I mean, he's still in a human body today. Right. And um, I think I think we need to remember that. And and how do I. How, how do I build a relationship, you know, with any human? Well, I've got to spend time with them. I've got to be honest with them. So am I really being honest in my prayers? Am I really, okay, there's a difference between spending time with someone just because I want to know what they know and spending time with someone because I want to know them. So why am I reading the Bible? What am I, what's my attitude? Do I just, do I geek out to theology, which is my temptation? And it's going to be the temptation of someone with a more dismissive attachment style, or am I seeking the person here? Huh. And so my mindset is going to, going to take a lot. And then there's one more really important way that I'm going to mention is through, through the community of faith, because that is the body of Christ. Right. And I truly believe that there's going to be most of the time that there are, there are certain traumas that could affect this certain experiences that could affect this. But most of the time your attachment style with the church will mirror your attachment style with God and vice versa. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. If I'm being real with my community, my faith community, I'm probably being real with God. Huh? Dang. And vice versa. Yeah. Okay. Very okay. well said. Yeah. Really helpful. Now, attachment to yourself is, oh man, th that could be a whole, a whole episode, man. <laughs> but, but, but again, we got to start with honesty. Am I honest with myself? Hmm. Do I spend time with myself? So mindfulness, self-reflection, um, uh, do I, do I nurture myself because that's a part of it, right? Yeah. Do I nurture myself in, and I'm not talking about just, you know, like in a discipline, you know, get out there, run your two mile, whatever. No. Am I warm? Do I take a moment and take a little self-compassion break? Yeah. Um, do I show an interest in myself as I would someone else? I mean, and this is so, I, I've preached whole sermons on this. Like the Bible doesn't say love your neighbor more than yourself, right? As right. yourself. Philippians mm. 2 says, look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. There's a, there's a, there's an assumption that we look to our own interest. So 
am I learning about myself, learning my own tells, learning to know what this or that signal means about me, yeah. right? So those are are some of those self-reflection things I need to be doing to to uh, do that work. One, and then one more thing that just popped in my head. I'm, I'm a believer in inner child work. There's a lot of ways to do that. Yes. You know, but those are parts of me that I need to attach to and nurture. And so doing that inner child work is another part of secure attachment with self so that I come to trust those parts of me, that teenage part of me, that young child part of me, trust the functional adult part of me to drive the bus yeah yeah good okay really really helpful um so i'm imagining maybe somebody's hearing this and they're going okay uh, i know i have um some things to work on this is affecting my relationships but it's also causing addiction where does somebody start i know you you're doing intensives with couples quite a bit maybe mm -hmm. you can give us an idea of what does that look like if somebody's getting started on this journey here yeah. So first of all, you got to get in community, right? Yeah. You, you you run a community. There are good communities out there. Um, you've got to find people who are trustworthy, yes. who are grace based, who um, who who have what you want. You know, <laughs> that's not a that's not a selfish thing to to be looking for. Look yeah. for people who have what you want, and you got to get in there. That's like an immediate thing you can do. And there's just there are too many resources out there for someone to not do that. Okay. That's, yeah. that's first of all. The second, um, yeah, like I do, I do work with couples, uh, intensives where maybe, um, maybe your partner's just found out about your addiction. It's been hidden for years and you want to be able to rebuild trust. And I walk them through, what does that look like? How do we do that? How do you do a disclosure at the, at an appropriate level you know, how do you do it in a trustworthy way? And then yeah. now what do we do to start rebuilding trust post truth, you know, in a new world with truth, not post truth yeah. is an after truth after getting the truth, you know? Yes. So, yes. um, um, I, I do those and I have a team of folks who do those. And, um, uh, so, so there's that, um, but ask for help. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I guess it just boils down to that. Like reach out and ask for help. I have people email me and and anyone listening can email me directly, jake at daringventures.com. And I will help you find help. Like it doesn't have to be me. I know I'm not the magic bullet. Yeah. So if wow. I can help you find local support, you know, our team will help you do that. Um, just ask. Yeah. Well, that's really kind. And it's interesting. I listened to um, a podcast called, um, what it's like, I think it's Psychiatry and Psychotherapy by Dr. David Peter. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No, I'm um, not. But he broke down a fascinating study where they um, they were just trying to, trying to identify what's like the most, I guess, the greatest indicator that a client-therapist um, relationship would be effective. And it, there was basically like, you know, they had modalities and they looked at location and demographics and age differences and all that kind of stuff, religious beliefs. And it was really simple. It was just, does the client trust the therapist? And as long as the trust was there, the outcome was pretty much predictable, regardless yep. of the modality and everything else. And I think that actually ties in everything we just talked about with attachment style, right? Like, does it not yes. make sense? If you're in a safe yes. relationship, relational environment, everything else is going to come together and you're going to get the help you need. So um, couldn't agree more. Uh, you have a YouTube channel. You have some webinars. What are some places where people can plug in and, um, and maybe find out more about what you're up to, Jake? Sure. So, um, I do have a YouTube channel. Um, I'm sure we could put the link in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Um, cause I don't honestly even remember what it is, but, uh, <laughs> okay. what the URL is, but, um, uh, there's tons of videos on there, okay. tons and tons and tons of videos on there that get into all of this attachment stuff and the neuroscience stuff and the, the recovery, all of that. It's, it's cool. all there. Um, so I would say that's a great, free resource. Now, yeah. most of those clips come from longer webinars that people can purchase if they go to uh, go, G-O dot daringventuresathome, all written out, dot com. Go dot daringventuresathome.com. And uh, you can browse the resource library. You just click browse resource library and you can see tons of 
webinars that I've done and, um, and read descriptions of those. I've got a couple that, that people may be interested in based on this particular episode we just did is I've got one called the story of attachment. And I go further into the history and the development and all the neuroscience of it. Um, so the story of attachment, and then I've got one called the theology of attachment and it goes through the creation story and, um, all of that and, and just kind of ties together the biblical narrative of creation, uh, with what we see in attachment. That sounds amazing. Dude, I I need to have you back. This is like, you got so much. Well, let's do it. I'm ready. Okay. Anytime. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you again for, for this. This was amazing. Uh, we'll put links to all that in the show notes and uh, just appreciate your time today, Jake. Thank you. Hey, thank you for having me. It's been great. So there you go, guys. Kind of uh, like a not like super flashy in your face kind of thing. Very laid back interview. Uh, very, um, you know, almost unassuming information. But I'm telling you, if you internalize this, if you really grasp what we just discussed, this could really change your life. I want to recommend that you go check out all the resources he listed. But he was really um, kind enough to actually offer me a little discount code afterwards. Um, which is Unleash. So if you use the word Unleash for the Theology of Attachment webinar, you can actually get 50% off and I'd love for you to get your hands on that. Um, The other thing is he has a YouTube channel, so we put a link to that in the show notes as well. And he also provided his email if you want to reach out to him directly. So um, lots of ways for you to get help. And look, if you are looking to further the addiction recovery journey and you want to just take maybe one more step, maybe uh, two more steps, maybe you want to take a few big steps into that place of recovery, the best place for you to do that is to get your copy of my book, The Last Relapse. It is available free to you at thelastrelapsebook.com. And this literally details my system that I walk all my clients through from A to Z when they want to recover for, for porn long term. So thelastrelapsebook.com, you can get your free copy there, my gift to you. In the meantime, guys, thanks for listening. Have an amazing day. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, it's Thea again. Thanks for listening to Unleash the Man Within. I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a free ebook that I wrote for you called The Ultimate Guide to Porn Recovery. It provides a basic framework for the recovery process and a few of my top tips completely free of charge. You can get it now at www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. That's www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. Now, if you've been impacted by the podcast and you want to show some support in less than 60 seconds, there are three ways you can do that. First, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. This lets people like you know that the content here is valuable. Secondly, you can share this episode with someone in your life that might benefit from the content. If you're passionate about helping other people experience freedom and success in their lives, this is one of the easiest ways to do that. And lastly, you can subscribe. I personally only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. If you're seeking daily encouragement, guidance, and insight in your recovery journey, I highly recommend subscribing to Unleash the Man Within. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you very, very soon. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast by Sathya Sam and his guests are for general information only and should not be considered medical, clinical, or any other form of professional advice. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk.